So it's a long section, First uh, Samuel 15, but it's uh, it's a really important, uh, critical section of the book to understand both where we've been and where we're going. So this past week, I um, I had a uh, I, I I was on my military uh, duty, and um, it was a little bit of an extended time because we have a we have our big inspection in June. So this is the every five year kind of a deal. Um, this is where they come to to uh, evaluate my sermon and to see what kind of a chaplain I am and my visitation. Now, actually, that's not what they do. They they're going to come and like look at every jot and tittle of paperwork that we do, right? So. It has absolutely nothing to do with what I do as a chaplain, but that's a whole other story. But one of the things I had to do is I had to fly, and you all know how I feel about flying, right? Um, I know, I'm in the Air Force, and I hate flying. So uh, the Lord has a sense of humor. He does. He put me in the middle seat on a flight from Dallas to uh, Colorado Springs, and um, and he put me next to um, an 85-year-old former nun who is a an active pacifist and no sooner was i on the plane than she wanted to have a conversation and so we talked from dallas to colorado springs on a very bumpy ride and uh she probably got more than she bargained for but uh but it was an interesting conversation, to say the least. And, and near the end of the conversation, um, we talked about a lot. Um, and I, I, near the end of the conversation, um, I was asking her how far her pacifism went. And, um, and so we were kind of talking about this. And, and, um, and I said, you know, there are a lot of bad people in the world. To which she replied, no, they're not. She said, there are not a lot of bad people in the world. Um, the things that go on in the world are what make us do things that we probably shouldn't do. And I realized she has a very, she had a, a very soft understanding of the heart of men. And I asked her, I said, well, what about, what about total depravity, you know, the, the original sin uh, that we're born into? And she said, oh. I don't believe that anymore. Um, there was a time when she did, but she doesn't anymore. First Samuel 15 is a reminder to us that there is a problem. We have a problem. Um, I titled the sermon, When Kings Fail, and we're going to talk about the failure of Saul under three parts. Saul's sin, Saul's struggle, and Saul's savior. So let's talk about Saul's sin to begin with. So at the very beginning of the passage, um, Samuel comes to Saul and he um, tells Saul that he has a word from the Lord. And that word is that Saul is to go and he is to destroy everything that has to do with the Amalekites. Now, you have to put this in a little bit of context because when you read it, it's shocking um, this is the God, when people say, I don't believe in the God of the Old Testament, this is the God of the Old Testament they're talking about. The God who would tell Saul and the Israelites to go and to put to death everything 
every Amalekite living, every animal, anything associated with them. They were to absolutely destroy the Amalekites. That was the God-given job that Saul and the Israelites had. And and when you hear that, it, it takes your breath away. You think about it. And, and the, but the context is this. The context is that the Amalekites were a war-mongering people. Uh, when the Israelites came up out of Egypt, they were, as the text says, they were waylaid by the Amalekites who came in and tried to cut them off. Um, they were vicious people. They, they, were, they, were, uh, they were wicked, and they, they killed for killing and they um, they they would have taken prisoners. They would have put pe- they would have enslaved people. They would have done all sorts of horrible things. This is a different era. There, this is the era of uh, you, you don't have uh, the Geneva Convention during this time. Okay, and warfare was was brutal. And these were brutal warriors, the Amalekites. And so the time has finally come when God is is going to deal justly with the Amalekites. And so the the job of Saul and the Israelites is to be, in essence, they are going to take out the justice of God on the Amalekites. That is their job. And, And the way that they're going to do this is they're not going to do warfare the way that the other nations do warfare. That's why God is so specific in the message from Samuel to Saul is so specific. The message is, you are to destroy them all, everything. Don't keep for yourself, right? Don't call for yourself out of the Amalekites. Don't take their strong men and enslave them. Don't take their animals. Don't do anything. Why? Because that's the way the nations wage war. When the nations wage war, they do it for gain. And God is saying to Saul and to the Israelites, you are not to profit from them. You are to destroy them because it is a righteous destroying that you are going to do. You are doing my bidding for me. And so we're not going to do this like the other nations. And so what's interesting is, if you look at the passage, um, verse 3, he says, now go attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy all that belongs to them. And then he says, do not spare them. Do not spare them. If you jump down uh, a little bit, you'll see verse 15. Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. And then what? They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle. That word shows up in both places. Don't spare anything. And then we read in verse 15 that Saul did spare the best. And that is the sin of Saul. Saul's sin was he went to attack the Amalekites, and they went in, and they wiped out everything that was bad. Well, we were talking in Sunday school. It was a large army, 200,000 plus another 10,000. So 210,000 foot soldiers go in to attack the Amalekites. You can imagine. It's a brutal scene. But the brutality is lessened because Saul, and it's Saul. We'll talk a little bit later about what, how Saul deflects. 
but Saul is the one who captured Agag. Saul is the one who kept the best sheep and cattle and goats and donkeys and camels. Saul kept the best of the herd, and he brought all of that back. And that was the sin of Saul. He had the word of the Lord very specifically given. If you look at those first three verses, the word of God, God said, God told. It's, it's God's word coming to Saul through Samuel. And then what we read in the passage is that Saul went, verse 4, he summoned the men. They went down 200,000. They were strong. They went down and they, they gave um, a very noble thing. Verse 6, to the Kenites, they say, look, we're coming. We're going to move against the Amalekites. If you know what's good for you, you, you do good for us. We'll do good for you. Get out of the way. And then verse 7, he went and they killed They attacked the Amalekites all the way to the eastern border of Egypt. And verse 9, again, is one of your keys. You can circle it. But Saul, but Saul and the army spared Agag, the best sheep and cattle, the calves. They were unwilling to destroy completely. Why? I think you can see it a little bit later if you look down in verse 12. You can see a little bit of the why. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and he went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to count to Carmel, and there he has set up a monument. What? In his own honor. Somewhere along the way, Saul began to, to think well of Saul. Saul began to think much of himself. And, and he starts listening to his, the voice in his own head and in his own heart. He is somebody now. Remember, if you just go back a few chapters, Saul's hiding. He's reluctant. He's a reluctant leader. Samuel has to pull him out um, in order to anoint him. And now here somehow that, that Saul, that young man, you know, head and shoulders above the rest, good-looking guy, has started to believe in himself more than he believed in the Lord. And that's why he didn't fully obey God. That's why he didn't carry out what God said. Why? Because somewhere in his brain, and he says a little bit later in the passage, he says, I feared the men. He was thinking first of himself, what would it mean to the people, right, if he went and they attacked the Amalekites and he brought back all this good booty, all this good loot for them? What would they think? Would they think well of him? Absolutely. He's enriching them. You see, that's the way the nations did war. And God is saying to Saul, we're not the other nations. Remember, the Israelites don't need to act like the other nations to be enriched. They have God. In Exodus chapter 12, as they're leaving Egypt, what does God do to the hearts of the Egyptians? He opens their hearts up and he predisposes them to give all of their stuff to the Israelites. They didn't even have to do battle. God opened the hearts of the Egyptians and they enriched the Israelites. They don't have to steal They don't have to do war like the other nations in order to be enriched. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And yet Saul, in his 
mind and in his heart and then listening to the voices. And, and the, the contrast is between the word of the Lord and what the people said. And Saul began to listen to the people. And that was his sin. His sin was that he didn't do what God told him to do. Now let's talk about Saul's struggle. Because Saul's sin arises out of the struggle that is in his heart. And we see it in verse 12, I already mentioned it, where he begins to set up a monument to himself. And the struggle is that Saul somehow has become this self-deceived leader where he believes that he is the powerful one, that he is the one in power. He's gone from the reluctant young man to the, to the solid, believing in himself, I've got it all together leader. And so he is believing now in his own heart that his victory is because of him, uh, because of his war planning, because of his prowess. Samuel hints at it at verse 17. He, and we're just going to just look at the verse, very first part of what Samuel says. He says, although you were once, what, small in your own eyes. You see, there was a point, there was a point where Saul understood who he was. But that point is gone. Verse 19, Samuel asked another question. Why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? What what does Saul say? Verse 20, he says, "But, but I did obey. But I did do it. I did go. I I waged war. Verse 20, I, I went on the mission that the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. Look, I even brought back King Agag so that we could poke his eyes out and do terrible things to him. Look, I I enslaved their leader. That's what he's saying. He said, look, I, I delivered on the job. Verse 21, the soldiers took the cattle and the sheep and the plunder and the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord at Gilgal. Saul's saying, look, this just gives you an idea of how how deceived he's become at this point. The job is wipe them out, and somehow in his brain that goes from wipe them out to wipe most of them out, and, and it's okay to take some of the animals for sacrifice. I mean, listen to his reasoning. I wiped them out. I, I captured Agag. The soldiers, they took some of the sheep and the livestock in, in order to sacrifice them. Now I want you to notice the next part, verse 22. Look at Samuel's rebuke. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? You've probably heard this before. To obey is better than sacrifice. Samuel looks right at Saul and he says, Saul, your reasoning is defective. 
So now you're telling me that the reason that you all took the best sheep and the best goats and all of that was so that you could sacrifice them to the Lord at Gilgal. Really, Saul? Really? That's, I mean, he's really, he's no doubt questioning that, that supposed motive. But then he says, isn't it, wouldn't it have been better to obey the Lord than to have brought back sheep and goats for religious purposes? And what he's saying is this. The preferred mode is obey the Lord. That's what God prefers. In the event that your heart runs astray and and you get tangled up and you get entrapped in sin and and then, then the way is for there to be sacrifices offered. But the Lord prefers obedience, Saul. And you had obedience right before you. You had them on the run. You could have done exactly what God told you to do. And yet, you wanted to do what you wanted to do. And then you wanted to resort to the religious mode. Here's what it's like. It's... it's um, it's as if you cheated on your taxes knowingly, right? So during the week, hold on, tomorrow's April 15th. What a great illustration. So you're doing your taxes last week, and you're penciling in the incorrect numbers in order to, to shaft Uncle Sam, right? Because he's shafting you, and we all know that he is. And the whole time you're thinking to yourself, well, this Sunday's the Lord's Supper. And I can ask for forgiveness and it'll all be okay. That's essentially what Samuel is saying to Saul. He's saying, so you disobeyed God knowing then that you would offer sacrifices to God with some of the loot that you took. Saul, you should have just obeyed, because to obey is to better is better than to sacrifice. Verse twenty three for rebellion, disobedience to God, is like the sin of divination. Samuel's saying, Saul, you should have just gone the whole way. <laughs> you should have just gone all out. Why not just chase after other gods? Why pretend that you love the Lord your God? Why not just go whole hog and go in for divination? Your arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul's struggle is our struggle. And the struggle is right here. It's in our heart. You see, I, I told the I told the lady that was next to me. We really it was a it was honestly it was a delightful conversation, and she was sent by God because she kept my mind off the fact that I felt like the plane was coming apart midair. And so we visited, and 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 as we talked about it, I I asked her a question. I said, you know, if everybody is born good, if we're all born and we're and the inclination of our heart is toward good things. I said, why, 
this is what R.C. used to say, why don't we expect that about 50-50 falls out? Why don't about 50% of us do good with every fiber of our being and 50% of us kind of flounder through life and make bumbling idiots of ourselves? And she said, I don't know. That's a good question. The reason is because we're not born good. We're born in sin. And we have this internal struggle with our heart. We have the power of self-deception living within us all the time. And that's why leaders fail. That's why kings fail. And honestly, that's why you and I fail. That's why you and I, at, at the root of it all, are sinners saved by grace. That's why Luther said we're both saints and sinners exactly at the same time. Because our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things, who can possibly know them? The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 talks about the fact that we are prone to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. You see, so we don't see the world as it is. We don't see ourselves as we really are. This is why it's so important that around us we gather men and women willing, as one one person says, willing to have a hunting license in our lives. We, we give that deputy badge to some people in our lives and we give them the, the freedom to come to us and say, that's not okay. What you're doing is not all right. Otherwise, we'll gather around us people that think like us and see the world like us and they'll be unwilling, unable to challenge us in those moments. Saul needed someone around him at this point to say, Saul, Saul, no. Remember what the word of the Lord was. Let's do that as opposed to your current plan. But he didn't have that. So where do we go? What is Saul's savior? <coughs> Here's Saul's savior. Saul's savior is this, and this is what we cannot ever forget. If you go back, if you go back to verse. We'll see it in the second part of verse 17. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, you did not become the head of the tribe of Israel. Or did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? So he's reminding him, look, you were once small in your own eyes, but, but didn't you become the head of the tribes of Israel? And then he says this, the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission. And that, that's the key. The key for Saul was to not lose sight of who he was and how he got to where he was. You see, had he remembered that it, it wasn't him, it wasn't his smarts, it wasn't his good looks, it wasn't anything that he did, it was all God. God was the one that raised him up. God was the one that selected him. God was the one that had him anointed to be the king. And had Saul remembered that, then perhaps the the self-deception wouldn't have taken place in his heart. Perhaps he would have recalled 
Oh, yeah. It's the Lord. It's exactly the same thing that, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's the same thing that God told Israel way back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. And there he says this, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to his forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand. Know therefore that the Lord your God, the Lord, he is the faithful God keeping his covenant to a thousand generations. What is he saying? He's saying the Lord loved you not because of anything in you. He loved you because he loved you. He loved you because he loved you. Here's how Paul says it. Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Right? While you were the most unlovable, the Bible says, God loved you. That has the power to alleviate and eliminate to a great degree the self-deception that you and I have. The wanting to be big in our own eyes, the need to possess that power, the need to be somebody, something, somewhere, the need to be thought of well. Think of all the decisions and the mistakes we make in life because we want to be somebody or something. And if we just remember that our self-worth really comes from the one who loved us when we were unlovable, so much of that self-deception can evaporate. Because now the need isn't to listen to the men. The need isn't to listen to the voice in our own heart. The need greater than anything is to listen to the one who loved us when we were unlovable. And what does he say? He says, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. There was nothing in us. God loved us because he loved us. Our resume was a shambles, and yet he chose us before the foundation of the world. That's what Paul says in, Roman, in Ephesians chapter 1. Your resume is a complete disaster, and yet he called you to himself. Somebody likened it to a, um, a wife asking her husband, so why do you love me? And the right answer is, I love you. Because I love you. Because if you say I love you because fill in the blank, that because may go away. It may change. It may look differently down the road. And so you must and have to find that understanding that you love them because you love them. Not because this or that or the other. You can fill in all those blanks but because you set your love on them. And God had set his love on Saul. And Saul failed to look and to see that. Instead, he looked to his own heart. He looked to the 
appeals of others. He was looking to set up a monument to himself because somehow in his own heart and mind, he believed that he was something special now. Listen, as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, the Lord's Supper, if there's any other picture that God has given us to tell us we're all, we're not all that, it's the Supper. Because the Supper says, listen, while you were so desperately sinful, Jesus had to come into the world and offer his body as a sacrifice of atonement to make the way for you to be right with God. That's just a reminder of our desperate condition. Our condition was so desperate, Jesus had to die for us. But the flip side of that is you and I are so loved by our Creator God that He didn't hold back and He gave His Son so that you might know new life. As we come to the supper this morning, let me just remind you that this is not my supper. It's not the Presbyterian Church's supper. It's not the elders of this church. It's the Lord's Supper. And the Lord is the one who governs who approaches the table. The Lord is the one who governs who it is that's to participate in His Supper. And so if you're here this morning and you're a part of the body of Christ, you've been baptized and you've made a profession of faith and that is in good standing, then the Supper is for you. The Apostle Paul encourages us to discern the body and the blood. And and I take that as much as a reference to the fact that you need to be discerning your own relationships. You need to be discerning where you are in the body of Christ as you come to the supper. But I always say, if you're in the battle, if you're a repenting, repeating person, then the supper is for you. But if you're here this morning and you haven't been baptized or you're not a repenting, uh, repentance-repeating person, meaning you're not in the struggle, you're not in the fight, you've perhaps given up, then maybe this morning you want to let the supper pass you by and you want to take the opportunity um, to contemplate all that the Lord has done for you. But the invitation is to all, all who would come, all who are weary. It's not an invitation to those who have it all together. And the Apostle Paul gives us a little bit of that direction in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he come. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the reminder that kings fail just like we fail. But there is a king, a better king, a greater king, the great king of all God who has not failed. He went through this life perfectly, 
he lived and he died, that we would have new life. And let us fix our eyes on that king today. The king who loved us with an everlasting love. The king who has set us free from the tyranny of sin and death. And we now come to this king's supper. A supper that he set for us. Father, would you use it in our lives for our good and for your glory.